Hopefully they'll come one day. <laughs> there are just a lot of people who are loitering. They are not, if they're looking for a church, they won't even know what to look for in a church that respects Christ himself. They're looking to see if the toilets work. The <laughs> The Christmas program and, and and they had the performance. There was some, sh- yeah. They, they they had a show there. <laughs> Let's go before the Lord in prayer again. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you. We thank you for this day that you have made, and you have caused us to see it. Even the day of Christ, for many have died and have not known who Christ is and what He accomplished in the salvation of sinners. So we just thank you, Lord, for the message of the gospel and you coming and revealing that to us. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead like Lazarus in the tomb, and yet you were pleased to come to us and to resurrect us to life. Let we thank you for these words that you've given us to share this morning. May you grant us hearing. May you grant clarity that your word will speak to your people as you have intended. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are still in the book of John, John chapter 12, and we are going to be working our way through verses 9 to 15. John 12, verses 9 to 15. John records and says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, that is, Jesus was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, men of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord the king of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's coat. The word of the Lord. And our title is going to be, Behold your king. Behold your king. I have one. (laughs) Behold your king. Mary, the sister of Martha, and her brother Lazarus have given us a summary teaching of what the Lord Jesus Christ was about to accomplish on the cross. Everything that they have done and are doing is preaching the gospel in a dramatic way. Lazarus has told us about how Jesus was going to die and resurrect. But the Lord is he who had come and commanded for Lazarus to come forth from his tomb and for the stone that was on Lazarus' tomb to be rolled away. It's Christ alone who has the authority, who has the power to command the stone that is over dead people to be rolled away. But not only that, the Lord Jesus Christ has also commanded for Lazarus to be loosed from his grave clothes. For no man is able to do that. It's Christ who has to come and loose us from the grave clothes of false religion 
from the grave clothes of whatever it is man may bind us with. But Lazarus is he who stinged. It's Lazarus who was stinking. <laughs> and we're going to see the distinction between the death of Lazarus and the burial of Lazarus and the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And for that, we'll go immediately to John 20, because it's important to our teaching. John 20, verse 1 to 7. There, John records for us the resurrection of the Lord. John says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. What we see here is that the Lord rolled away the stone from his tomb by himself. The Lord did not get help from anybody to roll the tombstone away from his tomb. Lazarus could not do that. So what is happening? Death has no power over the Lord Jesus Christ. The law has no power over him. So since the law and death have no power over him, Jesus does not need help to overcome them. See that the Lord took off the grave clothes by himself because unlike Lazarus, he could not be bound by the traditions of men. He could not be bound by the traditions of men. But not only that, the law required that the priest wash himself, his clothes, change his clothes after they had made an offering of sin. The law required a change of clothes. And so Jesus Christ is saying, he is our high priest who has finished atonement of sins. So he leaves behind the clothes that he had on when he made atonement for sin. And we don't know where he got the other clothes that he had on, but he had some clothes on. <laughs> and so the Lord is fulfilling what the Old Testament teaching was on the offering of sin and how the priesthood of of the Levites was foretelling the work of Christ. He comes, he fulfills that because the work of atonement had fully been accomplished. He now has new clothes on and that means the new covenant also has come and the old grave clothes of the old covenant has been left behind. And not only that, 
the sins of his people also have been left behind. But Mary has come to explain what that death was going to accomplish, among other things. The death of Christ was coming to perfume God's people with the Holy Spirit and the righteousness of Christ, which the death of Lazarus could not accomplish. The death of Lazarus could only produce a stink. That is the most remarkable thing about it. (laughs) That's the only thing that Lazarus could do for you. His death could only produce a stink, and even when he was resurrected, it is the Lord who had to command for his grave clothes to be removed from him, loose him and let him go, was the command that the Lord gave to Lazarus, and it is the same command that he gives to all that he brings back to life. Because there's none who is found by the Lord not having some grave clothes on. And it is he who has to come and command life and also command that the grave clothes of false religion be removed from us. But Mary has brought her alabaster flask full of anointing oil to anoint this son of David. Because these people were coming and singing, they are not just saying Jesus, they are saying Hosanna to the son of David. So this anointing is pointing us to the fact that this Jesus is the son of David. Mary broke the alabaster flask that had this very expensive oil perfume and poured it all on Jesus. And I think the oil was poured from the head of Jesus. If you're talking about anointing, these are Old Testament people. They are going to anoint from the head and then because it was so much oil, this is a pound of oil. It dripped down to his feet and this happened in the presence of his brethren just as David was anointed in the presence of his brethren. If you go and read Samuel, first Samuel, Saul was anointed, just, it was just Saul and Samuel, just the two of them. David was anointed in the presence of his brethren. And so this son of David has come and he also is being anointed in the presence of his brethren. So the Anointing by Mary of Jesus with this much oil, and John says one pound, that is very purposeful. He wants to tell us about the abundance of that anointing. Because one pound of perfume is too much oil. (laughs) And remember that this oil was undiluted. And we do not even spray more than an ounce of perfume at a time. And yet Mary dumped the whole undiluted thing on the Lord. That's a lot of oil. Talking about our own perfumes and deodorants, they just have a little bit of the actual oil. Most of the stuff that we have in that can are just solvents. (laughs) Filler material that they put in to make the aerosol spray. (laughs) But this was no aerosol spray that Mary bought for $100 or $200 at the mall. As a Christmas present for Jesus. <laughs> this was 300 denarii worth of perfume. A whole year's salary of an average laborer. And Mary's alabaster flask had enough perfume to supply a department store after being diluted. That's a lot of perfume. This is a concentrate. But Jesus gets it all undiluted. Why? 
because he's getting the anointing of God in his fullness because everything dwells in its fullness in him. In Colossians 1.19, Paul says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. So the Holy Spirit dwells in him, in his fullness, and so does the Father. So the fullness of the Godhead is found in Christ Jesus, in bodily form. But Mary does not pop the jar open. She breaks the whole thing to signify that Jesus' body was going to be broken by the death on the cross. And this was Jesus' understanding too when there were protestations about wasting the oil. Jesus said to Judas in John 12, 7, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. But Jesus, we have just broken the whole thing. How is she going to have any more oil to anoint you on the day that you die? We have already broken the jar. <laughs> Jesus associated that oil with his burial, but there can't be burial before death. So the jar that contained it had to be broken, broken not to destroy it, but to let out what was in it, some precious ointment in its fullness. And that precious ointment was the Holy Spirit, who could not be given unless and until the Lord had died. The Holy Spirit could not be given to the church before the Lord had died. The Lord Jesus Christ was revealed to die because all the promises of salvation were given in a will and last testament. And like any will and last testament, the benefits cannot come to the beneficiaries until the one who wrote the will has died. So the Lord was revealed to die. He was not revealed that he should just be some good example to do a few miracles, fix a few things here and there, and then go back to heaven. No, he came to die because without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so his body had to be broken. And Jesus Christ's body had to be broken also for the sake of his broken vessels, his people. And that is why the money that Judas got paid ended up purchasing the field of blood, the potter's field, for the burial of strangers, the broken vessels, who did not have a proper place of burial. Do you see that the money is connected again with this anointing? Because it is at this point that Judas gets mad and he ends up going and selling out the Lord to the chief priests and getting his 30 pieces. But God says, no, you're not even going to use that. I'm still going to have you preach my son. You're going to go back and deposit it at the temple and they're going to use the money to buy a potter's field with broken vessels for the burial of my people. <laughs> so it just amazes me that the potter's field was tied again to this event in John 12 the 300 denarii, and the broken vessel. But the Holy Spirit was a promise of the new covenant. This is something that 
a lot of people don't understand. The Holy Spirit was a promise of the new covenant, and that is according to Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27, where Ezekiel talks about, God talks about how he was going to put his spirit in his people and cause them to obey him and follow his commandments. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ who comes and baptizes, immerses his people into the medium of the Holy Spirit. The work of baptizing people with the Holy Spirit is the work of the Messiah. This is not work that is done by anybody. In spite of the many traditions that are in the church and a lot of the craziness that is happening, when the Holy Spirit is given, and if he has to be found in any person, it only happens because it's Jesus who did it and nobody else. It is the right and prerogative of the Messiah to give the Holy Spirit. And so it is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And even John the Baptist said, there's one who comes who is preferred over me. He baptizes in the Holy Spirit, but John baptized with water. And so in Romans 8, verse 9, Apostle Paul says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, that person does not belong to Christ. And one belongs to Christ because Christ chose them and he came in time and gave them the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit that bears the testimony to them that they are the children of God. And we can't manipulate Christ into giving the Holy Spirit. That is work that is outside our control. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, just like the wind that blows where it listens, so is one who is born again. And that is according to John 3 verse 8. But when this oil of Mary had been broken, it filled the whole house where Jesus was with the smell and freshness of life, the aroma of life unto life, unlike the smell of Lazarus that was a stench of death unto death. Lazarus stank and the breaking of his body produced a stench, but the breaking of the body of Jesus Christ brought life. But Jesus had to die that the blessing of the Holy Spirit could be given to others also. Because remember, Jesus had the Holy Spirit on him. But the Holy Spirit could not be given before he had died. Because the Holy Spirit could only be given in the context of the new covenant. And the new covenant did not come into effect until he had died. So that's what is going on. And Jesus actually explains this to us. A few verses down in John 12, verse 23 and 24, where he says, But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified, and he is talking about the cross. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. So if the grain of wheat... Jesus Christ does not die. Then the Holy Spirit remains on him alone. The oil remains in the jar. And not only that, the spiritual blessings of God that are in him remain 
in him alone. If he does not come and die, then we can't be adopted as sons because we are not natural sons. The sons of God have to have the Holy Spirit, otherwise they are not sons. There's no other way to be the son of God but through the redemption that is in Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Romans 8.23. Apostle Paul says, Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. Galatians 4, verse 4 to 7. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because your sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. See what God the Father has done. He did not only send the Son, but the Holy Spirit also. So the incarnation of the Son, or the coming of the Son of God in the flesh, was not so that man would have Christmas trees and for stores to open 24-7, or that man should speak in tongues, but so that he would redeem those who were under the bondage of the law. That's why Christ came. For what reason? That we may receive the adoption as sons. So adoption is a spiritual blessing that God has given us in Christ. So our sonship with God is not because we were all created by God, because there are people who say, well, God loves everybody. We are all God's children. Let's just love one another. It doesn't matter what you say about Christ. To be called children of God or sons of God, that is a privilege of those who are in Christ. Those who have been redeemed or redeemed by the work of the Son. And it is the death of Christ that opened the way for us to receive the adoption as sons. Now, if you are being adopted, guess what that means? It means you were not a natural son because you don't adopt your own children. <laughs> it means you were not a natural son and Christ alone, Christ alone was the natural son of God. Jesus Christ has the natural rights of sonship before God. So if we have to be adopted, it means we were some orphans. We had to be orphans, okay? We had to be orphans. And as far as I know the process of adoption to work, there's no child who helps in their own adoption. They do not help to look for parents. It is entirely up to the parents that are adopting the child, which child they are going to adopt and how many they are going to adopt. And so the teaching that we bring ourselves into the adoption by Jesus Christ 
by exercising our choice and will is not true. It's not true. Men love that. It makes us feel very important. But it's not true. But God did not just stop at making us eligible for adoption as sons. He also sent or gave us the Holy Spirit by which we can now call him Abba, and that is Father. So the Holy Spirit is a gift of God to every believer because of their sonship through Christ. And what that means is every believer has the Holy Spirit. There's no need for you to wait for a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. Once you have the true testimony of who Christ is and what he accomplished, that testimony only comes by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not given in stages. We get the fullness of the Holy Spirit once he is given. He is God. He can be divided. (laughs) So there are no sons of God. There are no sons of God who do not have the Holy Spirit. That is not true. The Holy Spirit is part of the package of what the redemption of Christ purchased. It's a big fruit basket that Christ purchased with everything. One big fruit basket that pertains to all spiritual blessings is in that basket that Christ purchased. And so Apostle Paul would say that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Because it all came as one unit. So one of the benefits of being the children of God and having the Holy Spirit is that every true son or daughter of God is enabled to approach God and call him father, which will be the equivalent of daddy in our time. And that is some level of familiarity of God that is not given to all men, to call God your father. So with what Paul has given us in terms of expanding our understanding, what Paul is saying is it is God the Father who sent the Son. And it is the Son who came and redeemed us and gave us the right to approach God and to be called the children of God. And in doing so, the Father also sent the Holy Spirit who is called the Spirit of the Son, to all those who are redeemed. So what we see is that our sonship is not just for us to go change our birth certificates at the social security office. (laughs) This comes with some serious blessings, spiritual blessings. These are the things that relate to our eternity. We are talking about eternal things here. We are not talking about things that perish. And so in the light of that, Apostle Paul says in Galatians 4, 7, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So in the light of the work of Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. Because when you are a slave to sin and to the devil, you reap corruption, you reap condemnation. We are no longer slaves. Why? Because slaves worked without an inheritance. They were not part of the inheritance. They could not be heirs because they were not natural sons. 
But in Christ, we are now heirs in Christ. We are now heirs. And what that means is, one has to be in Christ to be an heir. And if someone is not in Christ, they can't be heirs of God. And so then it's important what testimony we bring about Christ. Because if we bring a false testimony of Christ, then we have a different Jesus. And we have been adopted into a different family that is not of Christ. (laughs) But remember, Jesus alone is the mediator of all of God's promises and everything to do with God. Which means he alone is the giver of those spiritual blessings. And not everybody is given those blessings in Christ. Jesus Christ has been given the right by the Father to give life to as many as the Father has given him. So the death of Christ was necessary that the Lord would be able to go back to the Father and ask the Holy Spirit to come and indwell his people that he may bring the blessing and comfort of the gospel with him. Because without Christ dying, we would not even have the testimony of the gospel as we have. The going out of the gospel is Christ working through the Holy Spirit. But some disciples were not too happy about this proposal and the work of Mary. Mark and Matthew tell us that some of those who were present were not pleased by this waste, they called it. But John tells us that it was Judas who led the charge. It was he who was the most displeased by this waste. For he thought there was a better use of that money. And isn't it amazing that we always seem to have a better use of other people's money than themselves? (laughs) We're thinking, if I had that kind of money, I would not do that. I would not have a kitchen for 100000 I would not buy a truck for, no. I would use it much more wisely. No, we would be doing worse worse than them. (laughs) But Judas was not concerned about the spiritual significance of what was happening. He was only interested in how the perfume could be sold for the maximum amount of money and have the money deposited with him so that he could steal it. He wanted to steal the money, the proceeds of the sale, bring the tithes and offerings into God's storehouse (laughs) so that I can buy a jet with them. And I still remember reading, sometime this year actually, Crayford Dollar and Kenneth Copeland, they claimed that they can't fly on commercial airlines because there are demons in there. And that gets in the way of their peaceful communion with God. That's just the foolishness that men can bring you if you don't have your grave clothes removed. (laughs) So Judah's concern was not really about the poor as such, but himself. He showed his misunderstanding of spiritual things. His evaluation of spiritual matters was off the mark. He thought the breaking of the alabaster flask would result in a waste and was essentially saying the death of Christ was needless and wasteful. That was his take on things. It was a waste. It was dying in vain for salvation could be achieved through some cheaper ways 
or means. That's his analysis of the situation. What about selling the oil and buying these poor people some hamburgers that they shall be saved? And what's the problem with that? Judas, like many of the so-called gospel preachers of our day and missionaries, missed the point of the gospel because they underestimate what the real issue is as far as the gospel is concerned. Why was the gospel given? They are not addressing the issue of sin and condemnation and justification. So they go out to poor countries and they feel guilty. Guilty because they realize they may have more things than these other people. So they think the gospel is about bridging the difference between their own material well-being and that of the poor people. And so they forget about the real need which is to preach the gospel and they begin to feed the poor people and leave them with no gospel of Christ. But we know that the poor are they who have no gospel. It is they who lack righteousness. It is they who do not have peace with God. So what we see is that God does not judge things, weigh things the same way that we do. What man calls riches or blessings, God calls poverty. What men cause a blessing, I got a new job and house, God says, no, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute their sin. Blessed is the one who hears, who sees spiritual things. And if God does not account your sin to you, you are more blessed than anything that can be given to you in this life and forever. So it is important that we get established rightly about the things of Christ, lest we also stumble over someone who comes driving a Bentley like Stan. (laughs) The things of Christ have to be prioritized, but most importantly, they can't be opposed. For one who opposes the Lord is surely a fool and who go the way of Balaam, the way of Jezebel, the way of Judas, the way of destruction. And that will take us to our text, verse 9 of John 12. John says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So a great many of the Jews knew that the Lord was in Bethany and Bethany was very close by Jerusalem. And so they came in, they came in droves to see the Lord, but not only that, but that they may also see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. They were coming to Jesus just to see what else he would do or say because there was always controversy where Jesus was concerned. But some people came as seekers, just looking to see what other trick Jesus would pull out of his sleeves. Others were curious to hear more teaching, yet others wanted to see if the story of Lazarus was true and that Lazarus was actually alive. And yet others came to see if they could kill Lazarus. (laughs) There are some who are just attracted to be around where Jesus is or talked about. 
Some love the smell of burning incense. There are people who go to church only on this day a year. In a year. They say they only go to church on Christmas Day. You know those people. They love the smell of burning incense. The feel of the droplets of water as the priest goes about sprinkling them. I used to think that that was the best thing that ever happened. Just getting a few of the droplets on me. I felt like God had really gotten on me. <laughs> it just feels to see the robes, the, 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 the performance of religion. It feels religious and righteous to hear Latin being read because sometimes it just sounds like the language of heaven, the language of angels. But these are things that are found where Jesus is supposed to be found, but Some people are not interested in Christ himself. They are interested in these things that happen around Jesus. And they call themselves very spiritual people, but they are not interested in the doctrine of Christ. They are not interested in that. Listen to verse 10 and 11. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, Many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. The chief priests were not very amused by the development of the resurrection of Lazarus. They are determined to put Jesus' ministry to an end and by any means necessary. If Lazarus continues to live, this is not good. That is going to continue to bring more people to Jesus. Lazarus was bearing the truth about Christ and people were coming to Jesus because of him. And so the best way to deny that testimony, to remove that testimony, was by killing Lazarus. And that is human depravity at its best. We are just going to kill you because God raised you from the dead. Discrediting Jesus is not working. And so... The next best option is murdering his people who bear the testimony of Christ. And by doing that, they think they are doing God a favor. And if it means Lazarus has to be buried again, that is how things are going to be. But you see that the death and resurrection of Lazarus is here linked with Jesus. It was on account of Lazarus that many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. On account of the resurrection of Lazarus to life, that many went away not to believe in Lazarus, but to believe in Jesus. Why? Because there's no resurrection to life that is not linked with Jesus. There's no resurrection to life that is not linked with Jesus. There's no sinner who comes to life outside Christ. There's no sinner who comes to Christ who has not been raised to life by Christ himself. The testimony of their resurrection, if it is true, has to be linked to Jesus, not to their will. Otherwise, they're still dead. If one is telling the truth about the resurrection to spiritual life, They have to give all credit to Christ. They have to link their testimony of life to Jesus coming and raising them to life. 
Otherwise, they are not telling the truth. But the chief priests saw that their popularity was not diving and Jesus' stock price was on the rise. <laughs> so the chief priests are thinking, our sales are decreasing and soon we have to close shop and be on the street begging. <laughs> These are business people. They're thinking like business people. Jesus is he who is getting us out of business. He has a better message and he has better tactics than us. But instead of going and joining him and be on his side, we want to take him down. That's their plan. So verse 12 to 15, John says, The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's coat. So Jerusalem is a hive of activity with people coming from around the country who have come to celebrate the Feast of Passover. And this is an annual feast. The Feast of Passover is connected with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread begins the next day after the Feast of Passover. And it goes for seven more days. So they are here in Jerusalem celebrating this feast for eight days. And they have come, some of them, a week earlier to do some cleansing. So there's a lot of people for a good two weeks in Jerusalem. So everybody's talking about Jesus. They are anticipating to see him at the feast. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. What are they saying? And where did they get that from? Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verse 22 to 28. We work some understanding from those verses. Psalm 118, 22 to 28. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We'll stop there for a minute. This one who comes on the back of a donkey is the stone which the builders rejected, who has become the chief cornerstone. This is what the psalmist is saying. Builders are they who know everything about bricks and about stones. They are experts at bricks and building. They're experts at forming foundations. And they have this stone in their hands. They look at the stone and the conclusion is it is unfit for anything. And so what do they do with it? They throw it away. And what is that saying? It is showing us the humility of Christ. It's showing us that no man has ability to make a spiritual appraisal of Christ. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The builders, these people who are supposed to be the intelligent ones who know everything about construction, they even fail 
to make any useful understanding of the stone. So no one knows who the son is unless he has been revealed. That's what that is saying. But this very stone that was rejected by the wise and the prudent has become the chief cornerstone that holds the whole house of God together. And there's no other way to build but on this very stone, on this very foundation, no other righteousness than this righteousness. And so it is not Peter who was the chief cornerstone. This is not what the psalmist is talking about. Peter is not the foundation of the church. The church of Christ is not built on Peter. Peter was not rejected of men. It was Christ who was rejected of men as the cornerstone. Here, the testimony of Peter from 1 Peter 2, verse 1 to 8, whom he thought was the cornerstone. Because this would have been a wonderful opportunity for Peter to say, I am the cornerstone of the church. I am the rock. The church was built on me. Listen to what Peter says. First Peter 2, 1 to 8. Peter says, Therefore, laying aside all deceit, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by man, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are dis- disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. So Christ is the chief cornerstone, and see that he is the living stone. It's a living stone. So. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. It's talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. And we hear people say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us be glad in it. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But they have not thought about that day in the context of salvation, in the context of Psalm 118 and what that is saying about Jesus. This day is in the context of the appearance of the chief cornerstone, the coming of the Lord himself. The day that the Lord has made is the appearance of God in the flesh. Man stumbling at the incarnation of Christ. They are stumbling on the day of the cross of Christ and they continue to stumble even today. The day of the Lord is the appearance of Christ Jesus. That is the day that we are rejoicing in. We are not necessarily rejoicing that the sun rose this morning. That's not what is being said. It's in the context of the appearance of Christ. Men still think the manger was for making manger sins. (laughs) The day of Jesus was the day that the Lord made for the removal 
of our sins by his appearance. And so those who do not reject and stumble at the chief cornerstone, Apostle Peter says, they, they who believe that he is precious to you who believe he is precious. And they who believe they see that day as marvelous and as the Lord's doing. Because Psalmist says, this was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our sight. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So the day of the appearance of Christ, the day of the dying of Christ, was the Lord's doing. It was not of man's doing. And we rejoice and we are glad in it. For in this day, he removed our iniquity in one day. The Lord Jesus Christ, proceed the context, all these messianic expectations are pointing us towards the cross because Jesus is about to go on the cross. Everything has the cross in its view. And so the day that the Lord has made is this day in which God is going to remove our iniquities in one day, according to Zechariah 3. Listen to what Zechariah says. Zechariah 3, verse 8 and 9. Zechariah says, and this is the vision of Zechariah. He saw Joshua, the high priest of Israel, before the Lord, and he was being accused by the devil. And you know the transaction. At the end of the chapter, Zechariah says, now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol for, behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. That's Christ, right? For behold, verse 9, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, the seven eyes, that's omniscience. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In one day. So this is the day that the Lord has made. And Jesus Christ, by coming and getting on the donkey, is drawing attention to the coming of that day, to the coming of that hour, to say this is the fulfillment of what the prophets have been prophesying and work some more on that. But Psalm, going back to Psalm 118, the psalmist continues in verse 25 and 26 and says, Save now, I pray, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Save now is Osana. Osana, I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So this one who is rejected by the builders is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And his name is Emmanuel, God with us. His name is Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins. Verse 27 of Psalm 18, God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. And this one, who is on the donkey, is the Lord God, who John has told us, 
was in the beginning with God and created all things. But he also has given us the light. You see, verse 27 says, God is the Lord and he has given us light. And John 1 verse 4, John says, In him was life and the life was the light of man. And Jesus himself would say in John 12, 35 and 36, A little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. So all those statements are chock full of testimony that Christ is the God of the Old Testament who is to come. The Lord who is God is he who is also the sacrifice that is bound with cords to the horns of the altar, according to Psalm 18. He is the sacrifice and his hands. And, and see just how everything is so united towards the cross that is about to happen. And that is Jesus getting testimony of who he is before he goes to be bound on the altar as a sacrifice. So these are very high messianic expectations that are being drawn from the quotation from Zechariah and Psalm 118. So the people come and they shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. The people applies this psalm to the Lord and see he did not say to them, Oh no, that is wrong folks, you can't say that. You can't do that. I am not the king of Israel. He did not say that. He did not say, oh no, I am not the God of Israel. Wait for the one who is yet to come. No, Jesus actually goes and he begins to help them in that testimony. He brings more excitement and expectation to this moment, casting more light and demonstrating to them that it was about him. And so how did Jesus do that? Verse 14 of John 12, Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's coat. So the Lord is giving interpretation of prophecy. And he connects this moment to Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. In Zechariah 9 verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fall of a donkey. So this is the arrival of the Prince of Peace. This is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And the daughters of Zion and daughters of Jerusalem are the inhabitants of Jerusalem. These are God's people. And God is saying, behold, your king is coming to you. He is the one who has to come to you. The king has to come to his people because normally it's the people who have to present themselves before the king. But when it comes to salvation, 
It is the king who has to come to deliver his people. The people can't deliver themselves. So when he comes, he comes as just and having salvation. And we are told about his character. He is just. He is righteous. And not only that, he brings salvation, which means this king is the Messiah. This king is the Messiah. And Isaiah 62, 11 says, Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world, Say to the daughter of Zion, Surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. But see his men of entrance and his mode of transportation. He comes riding on a donkey, not on a chariot of horses. He does not come on the horse at this point. Why? Because he is not coming to fight with anyone in his first advent. He is lowly, he is gentle, and he is peaceful. He came to establish and accomplish a righteousness and salvation for his people to establish peace. This moment is teaching you about what Christ came to do to establish peace between God and his people. Donkeys were not used for war, but horses. So when kings were going to meet to make peace, they went riding on donkeys, not horses. Because horses were saying, we are ready to do battle. But when he comes back, he shall not be on the back of some lame donkey, but on a horse, ready to spill blood. And this is what Revelation 19 says. It's actually remarkable that God would give this testimony about Christ. Revelation 19, verse 11 to 16, John says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. (laughs) Okay, we are already making war. (laughs) His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of, of Almighty God. And he has on his robe, and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. <laughs> so the coming of the Lord on a, on a donkey was to say, I come in peace. This is not time to fight. But then people think that's all Jesus is all about. <laughs> they don't know the other testimony that when he comes back, he's not making peace with anyone. It's time to destroy. But I want you to also hear the account of Matthew of the same story of the Lord's triumphal entry from Matthew 21. Matthew gives us a little more detail of the triumphal entry. Matthew 21 verse 1 to 11. 
Matthew says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage or Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent to, sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you and immediately you find a donkey tied and a cord with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fall of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, O Sana to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, O Sana in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So according to Matthew, Jesus sends his two disciples to a certain village to get a court in the company of his mother. It was in the company of his mother. And verse 7 of Matthew 21 is curious because it says Jesus rode on both of them. I don't know if he was taking turns Right. <laughs> but the other gospel gospels tell us that Jesus rode only the colt. I don't have much in terms of understanding to interpret that. But what we know, the overall testimony is that he rode on the baby, <laughs> on the colt. But there are multiple things here for us to think about. The people are very joyous about this whole event but they did not fully understand the significance of the moment. They did acknowledge Jesus as the son of David who was going to bring salvation. And so by their actions and their words, they acknowledged Jesus as the king of Israel who was prophesied in the scriptures and they even quoted the scriptures. Of course, we know it's God doing it. <laughs> but not only that, Jesus also helped the moment by coming in on a donkey. But the people did not think that salvation, the salvation that they were expecting, was going to come the way of the cross. They did not think it was going to come by the way of them actually saying, these are the same people who say crucify him. These are the same people. Crucify him. What shall we do with this one called Jesus? Crucify him. The very same people. So they did not really understand what was going on. They were saying things more than they understood. And we see that being a very common way of teaching from the book of John. Secondly, the riding of the donkey was fulfilling prophecy that Jesus was the king of Israel. And not only that, that he was the prince of peace who was bringing salvation and not war. Bringing salvation, not in the manner of removing Rome, but in the manner of reconciling sinners to God. That is the salvation that Jesus was bringing. That is the peace that Jesus was bringing. Number three, the 
cord had not been ridden, had not yet been trained. The donkey is a very stubborn animal. And so Jesus is very purposeful in pricking that one out. It's not been trained by anyone. And yet Jesus says, you bring that one and I'm going to ride on it. And it's going to bring me to Jerusalem. Or I am going to take it to Jerusalem with me. See that the donkey was tied to a tree and had to be loosed by Jesus' instruction. You go get that donkey. And if anyone says, what's going on, guys? Tell them that the Lord has need of it. A preacher of the gospel is there to get God's people loosed to the knowledge of Christ because that's the message of the gospel. That is the message that Christ is sending us to do to set you free from your bondage, you continue to see the theme of getting loose. Set him loose. Leave it alone. Everything is about freedom. It's not freedom for us to sin, but it is freedom from sin and the bondage of religion, the bondage of works righteousness, the bondage of everything that deals with men. So the donkey in the Bible is a picture of rebellious people. It's rebellion. And Jesus comes and he rides this, he rides this rebellious donkey into submission. And that's a picture of us being ridden by Christ into salvation. And that donkey was just a stubborn donkey without Christ, but became a precious donkey because of who was riding on it. And we were nothing without Christ until he came. And he took us to himself. Listen to this. Listen to Exodus 34. This is going to actually excite you. Exodus 34, verse 18 to 20. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, this is God speaking to the children of Israel and giving them instructions about the feast. The Feast of Unleavened Bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you in the appointed time of the month of Abib, which is the month of Nisan. For in the month of Abib, you came out from Egypt. So that's the month of the Passover. All that opened the womb are mine. Just it's, it's crazy. Verse 18, and look how we leap to verse 19. All that opened the womb are mine, and every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep, but the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with the lamb. And if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. So this is the very same feast that Jesus has come. This is the very feast that we are talking about. And Jesus does not go and get some trained cow to ride on. As I said, he does not bring a horse. This is the feast of the Passover and unleavened bread. And God comes and he says, All that open the womb are mine. That is all the firstborn. But the firstborn of a donkey did not automatically belong to God without redemption. It had to be redeemed by a lamb for it to be accepted by God or else its neck had to be broken that is killed. So if the firstborn of a donkey had to live, there had to be a lamb to redeem it. And so 
as this feast of unleavened bread approaches, Jesus sits on the donkey, this fowl, this cord, and he is the lamb that is come to redeem the donkey. <laughs> so happy is a donkey that is found and lamb to redeem it from death. God is preaching his gospel, people. He's preaching the gospel. These are not stories. There's just so many details around Christ that if God were to explain every single detail, we would not be able to read this Bible. It would be so big. So a lot of the details he just leaves out and then he'll connect them for you later in his time. So the believer is the one who is a donkey. They are not natural sons. They are not natural sons of God without redemption. And they have to find a lamb to redeem them. Jesus Christ. So the stubborn donkey that does not have natural sonship can only become God's donkey on account of the redemption that is in the lamb. <laughs> Otherwise, God says, kill it. <laughs> so God loves everyone. No, he doesn't. God loves all donkeys. No, he does not. <laughs> but all donkeys belong to God. No. So the Lord comes to Jerusalem and everyone is like, whoa, what a minute. What is going on here? Why this commotion? The whole city is ablaze with excitement and much anticipation. But some are amazed and do not know what is going on. So they ask, who is this? And the multitudes that were in the know responded and said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So we are given a lot of the titles of Christ. He is the son of David. He is the king of Israel. He comes in the name of the Lord. He is the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And, and the Lord, if you still remember, had a good ministry in Galilee. Judea was a hotbed. It was very hard. So he had a lot of followers from Galilee. But meek and mild Jesus gets into the temple from the donkey. He gets in the temple and he begins to overturn tables of the money changers and those who sold doves as he had done earlier at the beginning of his ministry as was reported by John in John 2, 13 to, sorry, 13 to 16. Listen to this. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. See how these stories are connected. It's at the Passover. And Jesus goes crazy. He's very unhappy with how things were being done. He's mad at the manner of the manner in which the sacrifices were being brought before God. The issue is sacrifice. There was a racket that was going on in the temple. The temple authorities had insisted that one could not bring money that had been circulating in the world, in the larger society, into the temple. 
And so they had to come and exchange the money to get what they called temple money. They had to go to the Beirut change in the temple to exchange for temple money for a fee. <laughs> it wasn't cheap. So there was some transaction fee. Making money makes sense. Okay. So what have you been doing lately? I've just opened my Beirut change at the temple. <laughs> and business is good, especially this time of the year, the Passover. <laughs> and so with the temple money, those who had traveled from afar could come and buy the sacrifices. So there was extortion going on, commercialization and merchandise in the house of God. And this has not stopped. <laughs> it did not start with Benny Hinn, with Joe Austin, Gloria and Kenneth Copeland, not with TBN, not with the Word Network. It's still happening and it's getting worse. But in the larger context of what is happening, remember we are at the Passover and Jesus is the Passover lamb. The Lord is teaching this, that the sacrificial system and the temple system were inadequate and were perverted ways of trying to remove sin and to approach God. He was the temple of God and he was the proper sacrifice. The sacrifice that did not have any spot or blemish because people if you go and read, I don't remember which text in the Old Testament, but somewhere God says people were bringing very emaciated, blind animals as sacrifices. But according to the law, you could not bring an animal that had any blemish, that was blind or had any kind of spot. You could not bring it, and yet people were bringing those kind of animals. So Jesus is very much offended by that. So he is saying, even now, I've come on the back of a donkey, but also I've come to fulfill everything that the law says to be fulfilled. And the Holy Spirit says, behold your king, your king has come to accomplish the work of salvation. He has come to make peace, to reconcile his people by his blood. But not only that, he who does not have Christ does not have the peace of Christ. And they better be preparing for war. For when he comes back, he is not going to be back on a donkey, but on horseback to do battle. A donkey that does not have a lamb to redeem it shall have its neck broken. And that means it shall be sent to hell. But Jesus is more than just our high priest and God's prophet. He's more than our sacrifice. You see, all these things are tied in this testimony. The same Jesus said, all power and authority has been given to him. That is speaking as king, as the sovereign king. He is the Lord and master of his people. God made Christ Lord and Christ. He made Jesus Lord and Christ. We do not make Jesus anything. He runs the show. He sets all the rules. His kingdom has rules of conduct. This is something that the church is forgetting about the church. <laughs> the church is a kingdom and every kingdom has rules of engagement. The church has rules of conduct not for us to get in but because we are already in. Okay, The church of Christ is a covenant community that is under the headship of Christ. But if anyone doubts the kingship of Christ they have to hear 
from those who know something about it. Listen to Psalm 2, verse 1 to 12. And guess what? We'll finish. Psalm 2, Psalm 2, Psalm 2, 1 to 12. The psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Pontius Pilate, Herod, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break the bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. What is that saying? It's saying we will not let anybody to tell us what to do. After all, we are free people. We do whatever we want. We are under grace. <laughs> he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Jesus Christ is king. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. We shall break them with a rod of iron. We shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Wow. Now therefore, be wise, all kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled by the little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. This is just not talking about kings of the earth. Everyone who trusts in themselves is a king of the earth. Everyone who does not listen to God's testimony of, of Christ is a king of the earth. And God's instruction and exhortation is kiss the son, lest he be angry. Because when he gets angry, he's going to be spitting fire and it's not going to be pretty. I saw some prominent businessmen in Zimbabwe. He has a very big business, telecommunications, probably worth 400 million or more. He was caught in this part of the scriptures, verse 8, saying, ask of me. And I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And he was saying, God was speaking to him to say he was going to expand his business across the whole world for his possession. And he used to go to Pastor Chris Church, Christ Embassy. <laughs> so go figure. <laughs> but behold your king. Jesus Christ is our king. He is just not our savior. He is our Lord and savior. Praise the Lord for him. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our King, who came, had the triumphal entry, who removed our iniquity in one day. We thank you, Lord, for giving us the grace to not stumble over the rock of offense, the chief cornerstone that the builders rejected. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony of the gospel. Because now we only hear by the hearing of the ear. But a time is coming that we shall see him. But not all shall see him in peace. For he shall not be on the back of a donkey, but on horseback to do battle and to shed blood of all those who do not rejoice in his name. So Lord, we just thank you again that you are pleased to reveal him to us. That we may know what these things are. That we may be set free from the condemnation and the judgment to come. We thank you, we praise you, 
Украине, 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 Украине,